Have you tried all the diets out there because you are concerned about your health yet keep failing? Are you curious about these buzzwords we keep hearing? Intuitive eating, mindful eating, body positivity. What does it all mean? It's just so confusing. If you can relate to that, well, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Find Your Food Voice podcast, formerly the Love Food Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Duffy Dillon, seasoned dietitian who helps people move from a complicated relationship with food to developing their own food voice. We will help you defy diet culture, declare body liberation, and reclaim your peace. Find Your Food Voice Foundation has been built by listener letters, writing a letter to food, describing the love-hate relationship, and all the messy bits that feel like a dead end. Me and sometimes a guest sort through it all. We include book review segments from resident bibliophile and our podcast production assistant, Yelly Cruz. You can also catch Diet Culture IRL episodes with Colleen Rebner, operations manager over here, and hype woman extraordinaire. We ditch cookie cutter approaches, expose the lies that society feeds us, and rewrite the rules around food, eating, and our bodies. We call this finding your food voice, and it's vital we do it together. With almost 300 episodes over the last six plus years, we have heard it all, except from you. Submit your dear food letter at julieduffydillon.com. We need you to join us. Seriously, stop fixing yourself. And instead, let's focus on fixing our world's messed up, toxic view of the human existence. Subscribe now to join the fight. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. This episode is also sponsored by AbV's GettingHereToThere.com, a safe online space for the Bipolar One community to find inspiration through music and firsthand stories. Visit gettingheretothere.com to learn how advocacy musicians, music lovers, and others come together to reduce stigma and raise awareness of mental health. While you're there, sign up to be notified about additional support and resources. That's gettingheretothere.com. Today, we are talking with musician Craig Owens. Many of you may know Craig as the lead vocalist of the band Chiodos, but more recently, Craig has been focusing on his work with the post-hardcore band D-R-U-G-S, which stands for Destroy, Rebuild Until God Shows, which I think is a really cool band name. They just put out their first album since their 2011 debut, and the album is called Destroy, Rebuild, which got reviewed as quote, an invigorating combination of raw talent, fierce attitude, and rock-solid song structure. Check out their website at linktree slash destroy rebuild. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash destroy rebuild. Now on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And Craig is talking about what can often be the very difficult experience of struggling with bipolar disorder, which he has previously called the horror movie in his head. Craig talks about having extreme swings in his mood, which he calls the pendulum. Sometimes his lows are so bad that he's felt suicidal, even to the point of making an attempt in 2008. 
And one of the main ways that Craig copes with bipolar disorder is by understanding and managing the triggers that may put him at risk for either a manic or depressive episode. And in his discussion, he explains three ways that he uses the concept of triggers to cope. The first is that he has taken the time to identify what his triggers are. For example, he talks about how being more empathic with how others feel can be a wonderful thing both interpersonally and creatively, but can also leave him vulnerable to being drained. This gives Craig a better understanding and a sense of control over his bipolar disorder. He also explains how he copes with some of his triggers, such as his misophonia, or finding certain noises very stressful. He talked about how he communicates and sets up boundaries with others when he encounters a situation that is triggering in this way. And third, Craig talks about proactively working to manage his triggers with something he calls baskets, which helps him try to anticipate certain triggers. As an example, Craig tries to focus on a positive mantra that he tells himself each day regularly, not only when he experiences negative thoughts. And so how Craig understands and manages triggers has become an important part of how he manages bipolar disorder on his mental health journey. Now, as we progress through this season of going there, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website and wherever you find these episodes, you'll also find a short questionnaire. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to see addressed. We incorporate these responses into episodes, as well as a monthly column called Ask Dr. Mike on the Consequence website. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Craig has to say. Hey, Craig, welcome to Going There. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you and I talked a little bit beforehand about your struggle with bipolar disorder. And so I thought that what we could do was just talk a little bit about how that manifests for you, both in terms of uh, the more manic episodes and also the more depressive episodes. It's difficult to jump in to bipolar without really covering my entire mental health journey, which is a lot. but. I do believe that they're all intertwined. So I guess I'll start there and eventually answer your question. Originally, I was diagnosed with anxiety. Then it was depression. Then it was bipolar one. And kind of along that journey, the highs and lows were so aggressive and intertwined with other struggles like ED, or I have something called misophonia, or even just life, right? Just the ups and downs of life. But for me, my bipolar episodes, which are much more waning as I put in more preventative measures as I've gotten older, um, you know, to prevent myself from encountering triggers, um, recognizing when it's coming, things like that. I believe that just based on all of that, the combination of it all, and maybe just like my line of work and kind of the traumas that I've been kind of experienced in my life, my baseline is pretty high. So my lows are extremely low. Um, suicide attempts, suicide, you know, suicidal ideations, extreme bouts of isolation. And my highs are extremely high. You know, my job 
puts me in front of audiences. So going out and speaking to fans for three hours until I can't speak anymore, riding that high, that's kind of the swing for me from a, you know, I've done a lot of therapy in my life starting when I was, I think seven years old is when I saw my first therapist. And I've learned a lot from them. And I think what really helped me understand kind of those highs and those lows of my bipolar was the system that you'll probably hear me refer to quite a lot throughout our conversation of one through five. One being the very bottom of a mean, you know, of a manic episode, five being the very top of a manic episode, but one, you know, two being hungover, upset, you know, having a horrible day, four being great day, everything's going good. I've accomplished things, I'm on the right path, and three being kind of a baseline. And a lot of my coping mechanisms that have kind of come with it have, you know, that that system has taught me that you can't have a one without a five, you can't have a two without a four, and you can't expect to always move at three. So the pendulum is just so important to pay attention to, you know? Yeah, that's such an interesting concept because I think that one of the things that people do implicitly and sometimes explicitly assume is that a always being in a moderate place is best and b that you should be in a moderate place i'm using that word should because it's often implied that if you're not there's something wrong with you and i think what you're really talking about is a much more open flexible view of how mood tends to go for people especially when they struggle with the mood disorder yeah uh, and i think that even just recognizing the feeling takes so much of its power away because you're not whisked away in the emotion. And recognizing the scale helps me cope with the feeling in that moment, but also helps me recognize preventative triggers. So if I have the best day ever, I can expect a lull to come, uh, you know, so much of our existence is pendulum, you know, energy and, and the back and forth of it and kind of the coping of it, right? And that has really helped me with kind of my journey. And that, that's something that whenever I work with people who struggle with bipolar, that's, it, it, that's one of the things that we talk about a lot is, you know, when someone's in that really good feeling, you know, in that, in that place where it's, it's, it's right at the edge. So it's at, at the moment that it's peaking, it's like, this is great. And then there's just the potential, not always happens, but the potential that I'll always talk with people about that, hey, don't get thrown if you find yourself crashing. You know, let's hope that you don't. Let's let's try to put things in place to prevent it, but also don't beat yourself up over it or like, what did I do wrong? Because unfortunately, sometimes the lows do come after those highs. Yeah, they really do. And self-awareness, emotional intelligence, these things have helped me so much in my journey. And I think that they're so important for people to be aware of, to learn about. So I'm, I'm happy to be here to, to kind of discuss it all. Yeah. One of the things that you talked about, that's, it's something that, that I think artists can really struggle with even more than just the more traditional struggles with mood is that 
in a lot of cases, if you're someone who's in the public eye or you're an artist, the whole game is actually to evoke at times what may be very dangerous feelings. I mean, a, a, a manic, if you will, performer or an artist who can think in those excessive ways and, and get that down somehow in terms of their music is something that, that people will, will latch onto in some ways, you know, because at a distance, that energy is, is very gratifying for others. And, but it's something that as an artist, it's sort of like, wow, this is tough because people are almost asking me whether intentionally or not to do something or be a certain way that's not healthy. Like as an example, spending three hours at a meet and greet, you know, that's not ideal for somebody who is struggling with the mood disorder, especially when there's a show potentially just happened or is about to happen. Yeah. And I think you nailed it. And I think that this is one of, if I could go around and tell younger me or tell other musicians, I think that what we do, artists naturally have these, these empathetic vibes. Like that's, that's who we are. We're empaths. And I, and what helped me was deciphering the truth and recognizing that I, a lot of the time, my job requires me to be, and I call it a job lately. I, I'm so grateful to what I do. I don't consider it a job, but I just consider myself a vehicle for these feelings. And as an empath, I can walk in a room and I can feel everything that's going on, but maybe not everybody can. And I think as an artist, my job is to be able to communicate those feelings in a way that someone that walks in that room can understand and can kind of feel like maybe they have some sort of some sort of vibe that's off or some sort of feeling that's overwhelming, but they can't put their finger on it. And I think our jobs as, as artists are to identify those feelings. And, and it can be difficult being, you know, kind of the transformer that it goes through. That, that vehicle. And I think a lot of people maybe, and I try not to speak for others, so I'm, excuse the backtracking. For me, in my early days, before I understood that, I thought it was me. I thought something was wrong with me. I saw everyone else functioning and that blew my mind, just the functionality of it all. And I got lost in those feelings because I thought they were me and I wanted to do anything I could to silence them. And I kind of had an epiphany a few years ago where I recognized myself as the vehicle and that it was my job to identify and communicate these things and that it didn't really mean that that is my truth. Yeah, and it's this concept of being an empath it is very, very, very tricky because I, I think that on the one hand, if people like to use the term, it's something of a superpower. I mean, I really see being an empath almost as like Daredevil when they first, you know, when he first lost his, lost his sight or Spider-Man, like the morning after the bite, you know what I mean? It's like all of a sudden out of nowhere, you have this like intense rush of experiences that you've never had before, you know? And all of a sudden it's like, why am I walking into a room and feeling everything? You know what I mean? And un until you get it, under control until you understand what it is and, and you can point it in the right direction. It is, it is brutal. 
because it the the experience of an interpersonal connection is very different for someone who feels in that way. You know, one person comes away, like you're saying, this like functionality. It's like one person saying like, oh, that was great. You know, especially someone who's more extroverted. You know, it's like, I got energy from that. And uh, someone who's more empathic may actually wind up getting drained from that, even though it was a it was a great connection. And just like, oh man, why do I feel like I just been put through the ringer? It's because the experience is different for someone who's really empathic. I would completely agree. You know, the epiphany was, Empathy is not a curse. Empathy is a gift. And I really believe that. And I can really attest to like what it is that you're saying, being an introvert, because I am naturally introverted. My social coin drains very quickly. And it's a very difficult thing to live with and to communicate specifically on the social side of things. So all of it tied in really does create this kind of perfect storm for what it is that, you know, that, that I do as an artist. Yeah. And it's, and I think that it brings again to when you're talking about looking at people who are functional, you know, cause there's that, I think it's a, it's a recovery statement, you know, don't judge your insides by other people's outsides. Mm -hmm. Right. But nonetheless, it's very difficult to watch you know, people are connecting, they're smiling, they're, they're making plans in the morning that then last until the night. And you're thinking to yourself, like, I don't feel any of that. Like, I'm, what I'm seeing here is, is not what I am feeling, you know, and it's hard, because it's like, again, like the combination of being an empath and an introvert is very rough, because it's like, you could have just had a wonderful experience. But then you're drained. And someone is sort of like, well, hey, how come you don't want to keep going. And like, what do you say to someone like you're, you're draining because it, they are, but that's not really, that's not the point. The point is like, I get drained from these circumstances. And now you add that you have to do that as a living. You have to channel your emotions, people's emotions, then convey it to them. That's a lot. It is a lot. It's such a blessing though. So much of what drew me to wanting to do this in the first point, you know, I guess I guess it's just the connection. The connection supersedes that feeling of detachment when you're looking and not understanding. And that connection, you know, when I'm in a room and I sing to people and they sing back these emotions as if they've lived them with their eyes shut, finger to the sky, it makes me feel understood. And that connection refuels me in a way that makes me continue. Yeah, and it's this idea of connections, very interesting, because I think that apropos to this conversation, because you talked earlier on about when you're depressed, you isolate, you know? And I think that one of the things that's very tough for people is that at times it feels as though there's a unidimensional concept of what connections are. And, and generally speaking, that's for people who probably are extroverted and probably aren't empaths, which is if you crave connection, you should just want it to keep going. You know, there should almost be no boundaries to it. That's how you know there's a real connection. And, you know, even like you think about with schools, you know, it's like you get a participation grade, right? Like speaking up more is somehow valued. You know, if you're in your room, you know, parents might be like, well, how come you don't go outside? Or if you're depressed, it's like, get up, go be with people. And it's like, 
understanding that it's not that simple. And, and people can really crave connections, but they crave it in different ways. And so that I think what you were talking about is a lot of people don't feel like they're heard in that way. It's like, if I don't fit in, if I don't function in the same way that other people do, it's that there's something wrong with me as opposed to, this is just my nuanced view on this. Yeah, I agree. And that brings me to a something I feel pretty strongly about, and that is mental health stigma. And I, I think that we talk about when we're in it, we talk about what happens afterwards. But I think something that's really overlooked in kind of the mental health stigma conversation is the before, because that is what led to where you are. And you know, I can I can speak as you know an introvert that has to protect myself from hitting trigger points. It has forced me to isolate, to protect myself, and to protect myself in those social situations. But people rarely take that sort of thing into account. The the mental health experience before you're able to communicate your mental health issues you know yeah and and it's something you know that i've talked about with people i work with i talked about with other artists and it's sort of a shame if you will that when someone struggles with depression the focus is on well how come you can't do that as opposed to wow you did all of that with depression you did all of that with anxiety and that little shift would change the whole thing because we do that for people with other issues. You know, we, I think we give a lot of kudos to kids who have asthma and are still trying sports. You know, there's this like, Hey, wow, that kid's, you know, the kid's out there and, and, you know, they, they take a puff and, and if they need it, but they're, they're trying despite the fact that they have asthma or, you know, a kid who has diabetes, you know, there's, there's just a lot, luckily there's a lot of support now. But with mental health issues, it's still not there. No one's applauding you as you go through this. Absolutely. At times, I hate to use the term, but it's torturous, you know, at times. And and to have to go through it, not only to not be understood, not have the support, and then not get credit after you like you you've run this marathon or the, run through this gauntlet on a daily basis. It's it's frustrating. Yeah, and I think a lot of it you know, to what I'm speaking is like the identifiers, like someone with asthma, you can recognize that they have asthma because they're breathing. There are certain things, but so many people with mental health suffer in silence along the way, and then maybe are judged for it, which causes them to want to be something else. And that that's the thing. It's wanting to be something else, you know, is, is such an interesting way of putting it and wanting to be someone else. You know, because and one of the things that that's just so tough is to be able to say, well, I'm me. And I one of the things that I struggle with is depression, as opposed to what I think happens to a lot of people, whether it's depression, you know, being in a manic episode, there's there's other other issues as well. But the, the, the feeling like I just don't even know who I am. And that's one of the things that depre- I think that the idea you know, depression can trick us into feeling like we're worthless when the the opposite is sort of true. It's like we're we're struggling with depression. There's worth there. Sure. 
I would agree. So talking about those triggers, because people are always looking for helpful tools to, to manage their own mental health, whether it's depression, anxiety, whatever it may be. When you talk about those triggers and identifying things beforehand, what kind of things do you look to to give you a heads up that like, hey, there's a coping situation that might need to happen? So I have this system that I've put into place that I call baskets. And basically, I have a list that I refer to in the morning, um, very list-oriented person. I need, I need some structure. And on it, I have things like workout, one positive mantra for the day. On it, I just have things that I know have a positive result. One, one form of self-care, one form of cleaning around me, wherever it is my, I'm currently living. And I try my best to get through, but I go through the list with no judgments, but it stops any sort of racing thoughts because I can jump to one thing. There's always something that I can do, and I know that it will have a positive impact on me. And that's something that I've implemented in my regular every single day life that has helped me maintain the path to not only avoiding the triggers, but building self-confidence and self-worth and honoring myself and honoring the people around me. And it's just had a big impact on my quality of life in general. Yeah, I really like that concept. I know in the past, if I've struggled with depression, I, I, I had, I developed over time, like a very specific plan. And it was always the same. It was like, I would get up, you know, I would somehow get some kind of exercise, eat like decadent, healthy food, not like, like really like bad food that was going to kind of put me under, you know, and then rest and then do the exact same thing. I would sometimes do it three times a day. Right. It's like until, and somehow it almost always got me out of wherever I was. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure why. I mean, you mentioned exercise. There's something proactive about it. I think you get your body moving, you know, you're nourishing yourself, you're resting. And I think for anybody to kind of think to themselves, like what's their mental health checklist that you could do all the time. Like, so something like exercise is something, or the, the things that you're talking about are great for every day. Right. The thing that I was talking about was something I'm more employed. I mean, if you, if you can do that every day, I guess that that's good, but it's something I employed like when I was struggling, but I think for anybody to have that mental health checklist that they do daily, and then maybe the same or another one when they feel like they're struggling is such a good thing because when you're in that zone, you're just thinking like, what do I do? And if you have those things to do and you've practiced them when you're in the, 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 you know, fog of depression, or you're in the, the, the panic of anxiety or like whatever it is, it's just easier to grab onto it. I agree. I completely agree. And I think so much of what has helped me along in my journey is my journey, uh, the struggle and having to, I'm a very curious person and I love new information. So researching and accepting and figuring out what works and what doesn't and gaining the emotional intelligence to recognize when my feelings have feelings, when I'm 
close to losing myself in a way that I know doesn't end well because I've experienced it before. And I just think it's so important to turn and honestly take a look at your life and your experience and do what it is that you can with as much as you can handle in that moment. Now, that concept of my feelings have feelings, that, that's a cool concept because I know intrapersonally, as an example, people will have panic disorder when they're afraid of being afraid. And even interpersonally, a lot of times what happens is, you know, you'll react to someone not based on whether or not that bothers you, but because you know that the other person knows it will bother you. Right. And so like when you're saying feelings have feelings, that's what I'm thinking about. But I, I guess I'm kind of curious what you were thinking about, because that I, I think that's a very prominent thing that happens for people. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. Uh, uh, a lot of it for me is like, for example, we can talk about like misophonia. So I get triggered by certain sounds, a dog barking or a car. That's why I'm out here in the woods. That's why I listen to classical music most of the time. I get triggered very easily by sounds. And in those moments, I see red. I see red and I run as far away from the sound as I possibly can. And I have this deep-seated frustration with the sound. But on top of that, I feel more guilty about the fact that I feel guilty and I get more upset with my behavior because I know that it is quote unquote unacceptable, even though it's just survival, right? But I guess that's like a good way to kind of describe the feelings have feelings because you can spiral so quickly when you can't identify the truth of what it is that you're experiencing. Yeah. And it's, it's so, I mean, it's so interesting because a lot of people feel as though avoidance is the core of all mental health issues. I mean, there's, there's obviously the, the biological components and the stressors that people face, but from a, from a coping perspective, a behavioral or thought, you know, perspective, avoidance is the thing that can send it into overdrive. And I think what you just talked about is so typical for what happens for people who struggle with anything with their mental health, which is that it's like you have it. And instead of just being like, oh, I don't, I don't prefer that. That's okay. I'm allowed to just walk away from it or avoid it or ask somebody about it. And, you know, maybe sometimes I overstep, but it's basically okay. It starts with, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. And, and now what do you do? Because now you're living in fear of it happening because not only is it going to be an uncomfortable experience, not only, and then you feel shame about it. And it's probably going to create some kind of problem in a relationship because you don't feel comfortable expressing it. So now all of a sudden this like tendency or habit is now all of a sudden uh, a multi-alarm fire. I was it a five alarm fire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't even know the term. I probably shouldn't use it, but like now all of a sudden it is a disaster waiting to happen every time. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's I think it's so important to take the time after something like that happens to recognize the feelings, to 
do what it is that you can on the research side, but also to communicate the best that you possibly can with whoever it is that maybe have been affected by it. You know, for example, with like my partner, I will just communicate. I will say, this is what happened and this is how it felt. And this is what happened with, you know, sometimes if I'm, if I get something like that triggered, I won't come downstairs. If, even if I have like a visitor, like my mother has, has come over multiple times and I'm in one of those moments and I can't communicate in that moment, but I will make the extra effort to communicate what it is that I'm going through. And she may not fully understand the scope or the spectrum. She may try and explain it away. However it is, she needs to cope with hearing what it is that I'm saying, but just accepting it all. And it doesn't exactly prevent it from happening next time, but avoiding it is is only going to make it worse. And I just think it's so important to, it's almost like you're taking accountability of yourself in those moments. And the only way to get rid of the shame and the guilt is to do your best. Yeah. And, and it's in a lot of ways, you know, mental health stigma is actually a form of bullying. But sometimes when, when we adopt it for ourselves, it's like we're bullying ourselves. And to, to stay within the, the metaphor, you know, you only get pushed into a locker for a very short period of time. And a lot of times you're not even hurt. That's not what causes the damage. What causes the damage is I'm so ashamed of what just happened to me. I feel so badly about it. I hope no one saw it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm afraid of it happening again. And it it winds up being on a time level so much bigger in your life than the actual incident. You know, and 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 that's something that again, you know, bullying's its own sort of separate story of how to deal with that. But with, with mental health stigma, I think what you're talking about is just so important because no, if you accept it, you understand it, and you're you're trying to do a constructive process to make it better, that's not going to prevent it from happening again. But at least now you're learning, you're growing, as opposed to feeling like you're getting broken apart. Yeah. And communicating to your support system, your network, like, you know, if I know that someone's coming over and I have a half pit, half lab dog who loves to protect us, I will go out of my way. I'll go upstairs. I'll separate myself. I'll communicate with my partner. Hey, this is about to happen. And I, I need this. And you, you can put in preventative techniques and measures like I have uh, earplugs upstairs that I'll, I'll put in whatever it is you can do. And I think that it does cover the scope of your spectrum. And it's so important to build a support network of people that'll be there for you unconditionally in moments where shame and guilt can drag you deeper into the hell that can be mental illness. And, and that, you know, you, you brought up that the concept of of hell and you know kind of leads in a little bit to what we talked about ahead of time was you know your band name you know the the concept of drugs destroy rebuild until god shows <laughs> that's a that's that's just a cool name I mean, number one but the concept that destroy the, the the concept of the process of an ongoing ripping apart and rebuilding. I mean, we understand that conceptually as far as 
you know, muscle development. We understand that as far as like when you're working on a project, like a physical project, you're like, ah, I gotta, I gotta, you know, tear it all down, then rebuild it in a different way. We understand that, but somehow we do not get that when it comes to mental health, but that's probably where we need it the most. I would agree. I, you know, I always kind of view, I saw this great documentary that kind of opened up my eyes to a lot of like human nature. And it was just like this art pop weird documentary, but it something really clicked for me. And that was this idea of human beings being collectors. And I think so much of our life experience we in regards to you know the internalization of our experience the ideas the memories i think we try to hold on to those we try to have this perfect existence and and we try to collect what it is you know the the idea in the documentary was that we collect what it is that we didn't have as children and you know whether that be toys whether that be love whether that be friendships, et cetera. And I think it's really hard to let go for a lot of people um, in terms of their memory collection. Yeah, and that gets back to the issue of functioning. You know, you're talking about earlier with people is that we do have in our heads this idea that everything should be linear. You know, that like, you know, we, we get smarter we get more accomplished, we build more friendships, we get in better health, whatever it may be. And there's not a lot of recognition of the fact that in order for that to happen, there's got to be these big ups and downs. I mean, how, how can you guarantee when you start a relationship? I mean, you have no idea whether or not that relationship is going to be good, it's going to be healthy, it's going to be toxic. And so if ending the relationship that's toxic is seen as a, oh, well, that was a failure. I mean, how, how many times, you know, people will refer to a relationship that ends as a failed relationship or a failed marriage, you know? And it's sort of like, wow, because every romantic relationship that you're in, except for maybe one is going to end, right? If you're lucky, you, you die in the arms of somebody that you love, but otherwise they're all going to end. And so if that's the metric, well, wow, like no wonder people are walking around with complexes. And I think that applies to so many different things. It's sort of like, it's like, why does something not working mean failure, especially if you have more of a learning model to it? Yeah. And I think for me, the big thing that broke the linear ideology in my experience is grief because it is so cunning and it pops up in waves in moments when it is complete, like it's, it's, most of the time subconscious and it pops up in moments where your consciousness is a thousand miles away from the idea of it and that really experiencing that really helped me separate myself from this idea of beginning and end and then the path that we're on yeah and i you know look there's a lot of discussion these days about what's considered acceptable versus pathological grief. And I, you know, I, something I say to everyone, it's like, you, you do not want to judge your grief process. Because for, first of all, when someone says there's something as pathological grief, or like, how come you're still mourning? Do you actually want to have relationships in your life that you don't grieve if you lose almost indefinitely? 
or do you want to do you want to be in a relationship with someone who like after a certain period of time just kind of gets over you i mean that 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 doesn't really sound very appealing and that's not to say that that the goal is to be in situations where then you have trouble functioning moving forward but grief you don't you don't understand because you don't fully understand the relationship that you're in you don't understand how you're evolving and how that relationship and now your connection to that relationship you know none of that and i i really encourage people just like you're saying it's like you know grief may pop up at 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 times where you're just like i have no idea why this is happening right now and that's that's okay you don't have to you just have to be curious about it rather than critical just be like huh i wonder why that's happening you know as opposed to you know people will even say to you it's like ah oh, you're not over that yet or how come you're still dwelling on that and it's like i don't i don't know do I, like i chose you know it's like I chose to be miserable. Of course, it's not that, you know, it's like, there's something that I'm still working through. And I, I, I always find it very difficult when I hear people I'm working with, have other people tell them how they should or shouldn't grieve. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think grief is so applicable to so much of our experience in life, because, you know, you, you touched on relationships and all these other things. And a lot of grief with mental illness can be how it is that you grieve with how you see yourself in those moments, you know, that shame and that guilt can also come in waves. And I think it can trigger certain mental, mental illnesses and, and things like that for you. Um, it's, it's, it's all a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. It, it is. And it's, and I think the thing that's so tough about it, and this is one of the reasons why people avoid it amongst, you know, the many, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to avoid the, the pain of mental illness, but one of them is as you get better, one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about, it's almost literally, you know, people will spend years working and finding the right combination of medications, finding like the right therapy, building the right support system, and they're there. And one of the first things that then they'll say is, well, how come I didn't do this 20 years ago? And that's where they'll all of a sudden start grieving the loss of who they could have been, which I, which I get, you know, and I certainly understand. And I think that there's a place for considering that, but it's almost as soon as the accomplishment is done, the grief goes hand in hand based on that original stigma that we should always be mentally healthy. Yep, absolutely, I agree. And it specifically something just stood out to me a lot with what it is that you're talking about. And that's something that I deal with personally. And I grieve positive experiences as well. Um, for me, when I, I'm very goal oriented and a lot of being a musician requires these long kind of working towards scenarios. So, you know, if I'm writing a record for two years or a year or however long it takes for my process to kind of come to fruition and then I complete that and then I look around and that is a trigger moment for me. Or if I complete a two month tour that is a trigger for me because it's how could I have done that better? What did I just experience? Who am I? Is this how I want to continue? You know, there's this reflectiveness that comes and it can so often lead to negative self-talk. Yeah. And it's, and you, you're getting back into that empath concept. It's like, those questions are awesome if they're done in a constructive way. Yes. Right. You know, think about that. If you're sort of like, this, this is great. I've just 
was focused, I was in flow, I did something, and look at me, like 10 minutes later, now I'm, now I'm in a whole nother way of building myself, if it's thought of that way, right? And, but if it's not, it's like, it's just, it's just, wow, you just built yourself up to tear yourself down, not in the until God shows kind of way, you know? <laughs> But I, I would encourage, I think the things that you just asked yourself, it's like, I, I would encourage people, that's that's wonderful. You know, if again, you're seeing it as like, well, these are the different ways that I build myself. These are the different ways that I connect to myself. These are the different ways that I that I explore what I can be in the world. That's great. But if it's, it, it's just to tear yourself down, it's sort of like, oh man, like, you know, you just, you just did this great work. And now all of a sudden, like five minutes later, you're like, you know, like I always, I always say to people, like evaluate your self-talk if another person said it, right? And if another person came in 15 minutes after you just got off of a two-month tour and was like, well, you know, well, but but you could have done this better and you could have done that better. It's like, oh man, that is not the kind of person we need around here. If the person does it and like, hey, when you're ready, let's like talk about next steps and how to grow and like whatever. It's like, yeah, that that that's kind of a cool person. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. So much of that, that that grieving that I'm talking about can, and I think mental um, illness as well can really take you and flip the coin over very quickly if you're not careful. And I think you have to be very careful because going from, I feel accomplished, I just completed all these things, I should feel good, I should be able to rest, I should be able to take care of myself and do things that honor myself and the people around me versus, well, that was meaningless, that was hopeless, I'm not any different. I was working towards something and I wanted to be something else at the end of it. You know, the, the line is so thin there. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, and tell me if I have this quote accurately, sure. Or if I have this quote, which is something about, you feel like you have a horror movie in your head. Sure. And you have to chase it musically. Is that, did I get that right? Yes. I mean, which is is an awesome quote, even though it's a, (laughs) it's a, it's an upsetting concept, but I mean, it's a really good quote. And, and, but you think about these things that you're talking about. I mean, these are the, these are the things that horror movies are made of, like, you know, sort of not being able to escape or, or feeling like even when you've conquered, I mean, yeah, I mean, this, this is Nightmare on Elm Street. You, th- you thought you conquered Freddy and then he comes right back again. You know, it's, it's, these are very frightening concepts. I'm just kind of curious when, when you had that quote, what that, what that means to you. There are so many different ways that I could communicate how that means to me. Um, I think you nailed it when you were when you were referring to it. Um, the The concept is basically, as an empath, I have to wrestle with my demons and describe them like a movie setting. And so many forms of media are just storytelling. And in order to wrestle these things, these demons it can take you to such dark places and you have to find a way to communicate that to someone that encompasses not only the feeling that you get, but the feeling of the room, the dread. I'm a big psychological horror movie fan. So anything that kind of communicates that uneasiness that comes with our life experience and and I don't know why but that's what my 
subconscious loves to write about when I write. And that seems to be what connects the most with the people that I am communicating with. And so I have let go and I just trust it. But to be able to wake up and wrestle with these things, I'm a, I'm a sprinter when I work. So I'll sit down and I'll write aggressively for an hour and then I'll need like a break for two or however long and then I'll come back. But to be able to do that three, four times a day, a horror movie is the best way to describe it. Yeah, and you know, so many art forms have been maligned based on this concept, which is that are you somebody that wants to approach and investigate and explore things that are frightening or are you someone that wants to avoid? And if you're someone that wants to avoid, you know, someone doing music, especially in certain genres, like it's metal, it's hardcore, it's horror movies, you know, where people are, are like aghast, you know, how could you like, how could you talk about those things, even to the point where people who are exploring difficult topics are at times accused of, of promoting it. It's like forgetting that, like, you get the sense that people aren't even listening to the music or getting the point of the artist or the book. It's like, that's how powerful people's urge to avoid those feelings are, that when people have the courage to take them on, it's like, I, it, it's kind of like what you're talking about with, uh, oh God, was it misphonia? Yes. Yeah. Misfo misfo mis is it misophonia or misophonia? Misophonia, I think. Misophonia. It's sort of like, like that, that noise is is startling to me. You know, the fact that someone said the term depression or said the term suicide or creates a horrible, grotesque image is sort of it's 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 almost like it's an affront to somebody who wants to avoid those things. And it's like, it's like that's why we need those art forms, you know, not, you know, like and that's why I always gravitate, not necessarily horror per se, but like especially in music, like, like I I just I, when you can feel it. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, it might be uncomfortable, but I'm feeling something. I'm thinking about something. You know, that means there's something happening. That to me is good, even if it's disturbing. Sometimes, especially if it's disturbing. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a difference between communicating an experience and reveling in it, uh, which is we've already covered really, you know? And, and I think that it's just a different form of communication. Just because I sing about some of these things doesn't mean that that's my everyday life. It, it is a subconscious explanation of a feeling that I felt at one moment that I'm trying to communicate to everyone in a way that I kind of deem fit, the, the sound design, everything. It all has its place in the communication. Craig, thank you so much for, for talking with me. This is, this is great stuff, difficult stuff. Uh, but you know, hopefully we'll try to continue, I think, what has been your mission as a mental health advocate to kind of reduce stigma and get people thinking about these topics and, you know, hopefully a little bit more approach, a little bit more acceptance and a little less avoidance, a little less stigma. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Anytime. So there it is. Craig Owens of Chiodos and D-R-U-G-S, Destroy, Rebuild Until God Shows, talking about his struggle with bipolar disorder. 
Now, there's so much to take away from the conversation with Craig, but one thing I wanted to focus on in his discussion of triggers was how kind and validating his approach to triggers was. Unfortunately, many people use the term triggered to somewhat invalidate what a person is feeling. It's as if to say that we are only angry, depressed, or anxious because of something that happened previously and are therefore quote-unquote triggered to have a certain emotional reaction. But that approach to the term trigger can often be more harmful than helpful as other people may inadvertently or purposefully seek to invalidate our experience. That's why it's so important as we identify our triggers is that we do so the way that Craig described in a non-judgmental and constructive way. It's part of a kind and almost scientific process by which we are learning about ourselves so we can improve our mental health. And so if we talk about triggers as though they are irrational or pathological, this just reinforces the stigma of mental illness and worsens our mental health and well-being. But if we use the concept of triggers as a safe place where we can learn about our mental health and grow, it can give us a sense of validation and control as we continue to try to improve our mental health throughout our lives. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. This episode is also sponsored by AbbVie's GettingHereToThere.com, a safe online space for the Bipolar One community to find inspiration through music and firsthand stories. Visit GettingHereToThere.com to learn how advocacy musicians, music lovers, and others come together to reduce stigma and raise awareness of mental health. While you're there, sign up to be notified about additional support and resources. That's gettingheretothere.com. I want to thank Craig Owens for this wonderful conversation. And I, of course, want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at one 800 622 4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads.